considering uh, he's a man who loves to eat. And he knows how to cook. His wisdom is like greater than the ancients put together. And those guys knew how to barbecue. Well, we're going to trickle back in, but I think we will go ahead and get started. Thanks, uh, thanks everybody, for being here. Why don't you join me in prayer for Wade? Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would rest on Wade right now, that you'd fill him. God, that you'd fill him up just with a tremendous sense of your presence and your peace. Lord, quiet his soul so that he can just be a, uh, an ear and a mouth for you, hearing from you and speaking to us. Give us ears to hear as well. Lord, let us be good soil and hold on to the word he's brought. So thank you for him. Thank you for what he's prepared. We're excited to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, dude. All right, so friends, uh, first of all, and there's water behind me. Thank you. Okay. Yay! So we're talking, um, of course, about um, Seven Deadly Sins. This is our teaching series um, that Gordy has introduced us. Um, today, as you know, I'm going to talk on gluttony. Uh, first of all, I think it's hilarious. Okay, so this is all you need to listen to. Are you ready for this? I'm going to tell you my whole sermon in like one minute. Where I'm going with this is we're going to um, focusing on um, Mark 4.4, 4, that a man shall not live by bread alone, right? Um, so I think it's pretty funny that, of course, every week we spend a lot of time in putting together the technical preparations and, you know, the worship team does their sort of thing. And then there's always a glitch, which we never want to happen, but, you know, man doesn't live by his prezi alone either. So uh, even if the technology doesn't work, um, you know, God still reigns, and that's not going to stop me, but um, also uh, this is a good time to give a big shout out um, to uh, Dean and um, to Ian and everyone who works back there at their desk. We never really think about these things until something goes wrong, right? So the people and, you know, Mark and uh, Peter and everyone back there just, you've never really thought about it, have you? Until something goes wrong. They do a fabulous job. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Uh, all these issues today are just sort of caused by the, um, by the hamsters in that old computer running around in their little wheel, and they're just getting tired. That's all. So, um, in talking about gluttony today, um, yeah, I had, uh, I had many, many ways to go with this. Um, so first of all, I thought I'd show you, um, an internet picture of a, of a cat because for some reason people like cats on the internet. So there you go. There's a cat who could be a glutton. Um, and in talking about gluttony, um, we instantly think that we know what gluttony is, right? And this is what, uh, St. Thomas, uh, Aquinas said about, um, gluttony. Um, and the Bible has um, lots of things to say about gluttony as well, um, specifically in Proverbs. Um, and, and the King James Version is best for this. Um, for the drunkard and glutton shall come to poverty. You know, and things like, uh, when consider diligently what is put before thee and put a knife to their throat if thou be a man given to appetite. And I think when you're reading the King James Version, it's more fun if you read like this. You know, it has a little bit more gravitas. So there's, um, the Bible has many things to say about gluttony, and um, so does our popular culture. Good afternoon, sir, and how are we today? Better. I'm sure you've seen this. Gaston, a bucket for Monsieur. 
and Google Ads. How many of you have seen this before? How many of you have not seen this before? Oh, you're about to be surprised. <laughs> yeah, so the whole thing goes on for another six minutes, um, basically uh, about like that. Uh, a very famous scene from um, Monty Python's Meaning of Life, um, where uh, the restaurant scene where Mr. Creus, so what ends up happening is he orders the entire menu mixed up in a bucket, and the scene goes on with much more um, fake vomit for six minutes, and ultimately he explodes, spewing um, stage vomit over everyone. Um, and now that I really have your attention, it's... I really like being part of this church because you get to play remixed GNR and show Monty Python puking scenes when you're preaching. So welcome to Vancouver Eastside Vineyard. You're in the right place. Um, it's how we roll. Um, in talking about gluttony, um, Frederick Buchner said this, and this is, I think, it, it's fun to show the cat pictures and, you know, Mr. Creote soap puking scenes, but really, this is what we're talking about. A glutton is one who raids the icebox for a cure for spiritual malnutrition. So I have um, a confession for you coming up here. Um, I'm a glutton. I have sinned. And um, as Alex said, um, I really like eating. I like cooking. Um, and... I think so often, I also want to talk about what this sermon is not going to be, which is my next point here. When we talk about gluttony in our culture, the easy, immediate thing is to go straight to, well, you over, you know, people overeat and fat people are bad. And that's so not where I'm going with this. Because it's too easy, Right? I have sinned with gluttony, and, you know, my father died when he was almost 80, and he had a 34-inch waist. He was six feet tall. My mother is 5'11". She weighs maybe 100 pounds, soaking wet. Looking at me, although, uh, you know, I have... You're not going to look at me and think that I have struggled with this. And when we talk about seven deadly sins, and we're up here, we're preaching, we don't single people out if you're, oh, let's say, an adulterer. Hey, you, right? Like, that's, that's not cool. And so often in our society, because um, self-image is such a big thing and our media portrays, especially for women, such a difficult thing about body image, we're not going to talk about fatness in this sermon because it's too easy. I think that the root of gluttony is much deeper, and that it affects all of us in our culture. And I do remember, um, so those of you who know me know that um, I've been part of a, a missionary organization, Youth With Mission, for a very long time. And I did my missionary training um, in the Okanagan Valley in a town called Winfield, um, between Kelowna and Vernon. And the first couple years that I was there, um, you know, we went through some growing pains as an organization, and there wasn't always a lot of food. And I remember that one Thanksgiving, we had this huge, big Thanksgiving feast. And uh, I was 20. I'm, I was 20. I was 20. So, you know, young man burning through a lot of calories, uh, and Thanksgiving, and was often 
hungry. So we had this big Thanksgiving feast, and I did actually eat so much that I did make myself sick and had to run to the bathroom like Mr. Creosote. And fully, just completely overate. Just complete gluttonous sin. I've done that. Um, So I think you guys get my point. We're not, it's too easy just to focus on overeating and say that it's bad. Because we know that. I think, there's, um, I think there's some deeper things in here that I want to talk about. So as Gordy has introduced this sermon series, he's asked us all as teachers to focus on um, our topic with this framework. We want to talk about the pathology of our sin. Um, what good does this particular vice uh, offer apart from God? I mean, because obviously people sin for a reason, right? So, I mean, we're after something. Uh, and then um, Gordy has asked us to focus on what he calls the judo principle, or how can we use the power of this sin or vice that attracts us um, to our advantage? You know, how do we turn that uh, around and focus on holiness? Make sense? Okay. So, let's get going. So, obviously, uh, gluttony's focus is on pleasure. That's no secret. Immediate, tangible Pleasure. Um, because, um, I'm getting ahead of myself here. So, I think that gluttony is, even if we're talking about overeating, is not talking about how much we are eating. I mean, because everyone's body's different, right? I mean, I don't look like I have a problem with gluttony, but I have. Um, it's really about... Um, how our eating reflects how we take pleasure in eating our food, and specifically, why. Does that make sense? Because eating's fun. Eating's really fun. Eating is good. Um, God created your taste buds. Okay, now seriously, think about that. God, God, yeah, God didn't have to create taste buds. Like, food doesn't have to taste good. Like the purpose of food is to give you calories so that your way your body can burn it, so you have energy, so that way you do things and your heart keeps popping and you keep breathing. Like that's the purpose of food. Why did God give us taste buds? That's ridiculously cool. God wants you to have pleasure. This sort of weirded me out um, in between, um, I, I told you, uh, in my 20s, I was um, in the Okanagan with this missionary organization. Um, so what would happen with my schedule is I'd um, do training with this missionary school from uh, September to December. We'd go on outreach to some cool third world country, uh, uh, December, January, come back, finish up in February, wrap up the school in March. And then from March and then through the spring and summer, I'd find some job somewhere to help support my missionary habit. And uh, one year, I was back um, in the small town that my parents lived in, and I got this. The only job I could get is I was working as a waiter at your typical small town truck stop, and this literally was a truck stop, like attached to a gas station kind of truck stop. Have you guys eaten at places like that? Yeah, many times. Uh, The place was hilarious because everything was brown. Like, not joking. Like, the carpet 
like that industrial restaurant, right? All the seats, brown vinyl. You know, they even had like a little coffee bar with like the spinny seats. All the plates were stoneware and all the food was brown. Like breakfast, bacon, eggs, toast, coffee, right? Lunch, grilled cheese sandwich, um, beef barley soup. Uh, supper was like breaded veal cutlets, mashed potatoes, and gravy. Like if it wasn't brown, we didn't serve it. When someone's like, oh, I'd like a salad. <laughs> like people are like, what? You want a salad? There was like this five-gallon bucket in the cooler that just had like shredded cabbage and carrots in it. And like you'd take a bowl and you'd scoop out some shredded vegetables and pour out the water and go, there's your salad, you know? <laughs> No one ordered it because everything was brown. Um, and so I'm doing my job in serving the farmers and the truck drivers uh, who were our steady clientele. Um, and it, it, was, it was supper time, and I remember serving this guy, and I'm, you know, even though everything was brown, it's still my job. I'm trying to do my best. I'm trying to support my missionary habit, make some money. I'm like, so how is your meal, sir? And he's like, I don't know. And it seriously, it took me back. I'm like... Uh, okay. And he saw that I was confused. He's like, no, really, I don't know because I had this operation and I don't have any sense of taste. And so what I said was, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. You know, can I get you anything else? What I thought in my mind was, well, if you're eating here, that's probably really handy. <laughs> I'm like, you must be lucky in some circumstances, <laughs> you know, um, but that would be unfortunate not to be able to taste, right? That, that does affect some people. But I think it's so amazing that the creator of the universe gave us taste buds that he wants us to experience pleasure. And he wants us to feel full after eating. Um, and the Bible even supports this theory, believe it or not. Uh, like uh, in Genesis of the fruit of the tree of the garden. Um, or... Uh, this one, for all you lovers of bacon. Uh, and Alec has talked about me talking about this whenever I preach. So Peter's vision, uh, he sees, you know, the sheep come down from heavens and all sorts of um, non-kosher but tasty animals are in there. Um, and then finally, here in Luke, I love this one. For John the Baptist didn't spend his time eating or drinking wine. And you say he's possessed by a demon. The son of man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks. And you say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So, sinners. so Jesus obviously liked eating because he was accused of being a glutton. Now, we know that he wasn't because he was the son of God and he didn't sin. But nonetheless, Jesus obviously liked a good party and liked to enjoy his food. So eating food, enjoying food, getting pleasure from food, obviously is not bad, right? That makes sense. That's just pretty straight up forward. Um, so gluttony happens when our desire for pleasure from food runs out of control. That's pretty straight up. And so Paul talks about being mastered by pleasure, of course, in this verse. I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do, oh, I can't even read today. You say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. So um, we are not supposed to be ruled by our appetites. Um, 
And I thought that this was a, a nice little sentence here. That food and pleasure are intended to be goods, to be consumed, not gods. That's a clever little way to put it, I thought. Isn't that interesting? Um, and so then St. Augustine was quoted this way. That virtuous people avail themselves of the things of this life with the moderation of a user, not the attachment of a lover. And this really made me think about my feelings for coffee, if we're going to talk about gluttony. And I've thought seriously uh, about this, um, because also in a period of my life, I worked as a barista for three years, and I had unlimited access to like the finest espresso in the world. And I was encouraged, literally encouraged to drink as much of it as humanly possible. That sort of stuff leads to addiction, right? Like you'd never go, oh, hey, look, here's a room full of cocaine. Help yourself. That's kind of what it was for me, though. Like, I got seriously addicted to espresso. I was probably drinking about 15 or 16 shots a day. Easily. And when it's free, well, see, it's really not the caffeine, right? Because, okay, small aside. All right. Espresso contains surprisingly little caffeine, right? It really does. Because, okay, so, so here's your coffee free, okay? I think I can put it in. We're going to sidetrack a bit and give you a little bit of coffee education here, okay? So, first of all, how are most espresso roasts roasted? Dark. When you roast coffee dark, what happens to the caffeine? Most of it is burnt out of it. Coffee that is lighter roast has actually more caffeine than darker roast, right? Caffeine is a drug. It does not have taste. So if your coffee tastes strong, it's usually a darker roast, which means there's actually less caffeine in the coffee to start with. How long does a good shot of espresso take to extract? 12 to 30 seconds (laughs) is correct. How is caffeine extracted from coffee grounds? Bing, 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 exposure to water. So if you really want a lot of caffeine out of your coffee, buy crappy light roast coffee, put it in one of those percolators that we have right there, and let it bubble through for about three hours. Why do you think all of you are so eager to get in there after worship? Because it's a drug. All right, so there's your coffee education. That wasn't, that wasn't on my notes, but there you go. You learned something about coffee today. So anyways, um, I went through a period of my life where I was definitely a coffee glutton. You know, you start in the morning, you have your, you have your double speed ball, um, which is a cup of dark roast with two shots of espresso in it. Uh, and then when you're making coffee, when you're standing in front of your espresso machine, right, you're always... And b- b- who, who was a barista here in the room? Mark? Anyone else? Yeah, you know that if someone orders a single shot, first of all, why would you do that? But you always run a double shot, right? So you have your little demitasse on top of the machine, right? Because you need this shot for your customer. What? You're going to take that shot and you're going to just pour it down the drain? (laughs) Yeah, right. No, I'm going to pour it down my mouth, right? That's what I'm going to do with it. And then also, um, 
I invented my own coffee drink, which I titled the Binge and Purge. So it was um, a 16-ounce ice vanilla mocha latte, right? So what you do is you take a pint glass, you fill it with ice, you take vanilla syrup, pour it over the ice, then you take chocolate syrup and you squeeze it around the inside rim of the glass so that way it dribbles down and looks all cool and like a chocolate lava lamp. Then you pull four shots of espresso, dump those in, which leaves you about that much room for cold milk. And then you're like, "Eh, there's a little bit of milk. And you stir it around. And the problem with that thing is that it tastes like candy. So you can just go, and it's gone. And it's not really the caffeine that gets you. It's the sugar. Uh, But I'm telling you, man, that was fun. So what happened to me is that I was not a virtuous person in regards to my feelings about espresso. I had the attachment of a lover. I'm like, oh, I love my espresso. And then what happened is I quit my job and I couldn't afford my habit. And I actually uh, went traveling around um, Europe and spent most of my time in the UK. And um, for um, no offense, Don, but for... For a nation that managed to enslave the entire world with their amazing navy, they sure make lousy coffee. So I had to seriously get over my coffee addiction. Um, and, and today, I usually drink about one cup of coffee a day. Uh, and I really enjoy it. But, um, and my wife is laughing. I have said that, which I'm going to, which is a point that I'm coming up with about thankfulness, right? So when we're talking about gluttony, we're not just talking about overeating. Do you see where I'm going here? I have sinned, folks. I have the right to say this. So obviously, what good does this vice of gluttony um, offer apart from God and his ways? Duh. Uh, pleasure, obviously. Eating is fun. And as your church DJ, I need to bring up this excellent cure track for all you aging goths in the audience like me. Uh, This was actually a really excellent track for those of you who never listened to The Cure. Surprisingly guitar-based for The Cure and very enjoyable and appropriate right now as we look at Ecclesiastes. Oh, get back there, Ecclesiastes. My point in playing you the cure is that Ecclesiastes 6-7 says, The labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. Ain't that the truth? It seems that when we're focusing on pleasure, it's never enough, right? You're like, hey, I've already had eight shots of espresso today. One more would be good. I've been there. The other problem with gluttony is our focus on self. Gluttony is all about me, my pleasure, what feels good for me. Like me at the picnic last week with Monica's potato salad. What? What's that? You guys didn't get any of Monica's potato salad? Oh, that's because I took two helpings. Right here. Yeah. Um, now let's not point fingers. 
I can point fingers at myself because I took, no, that's not good. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. We're not pointing fingers here other than at yourself, right? So gluttony's focus is all self-focused. Um, you know, the great thing about eating is doing it together, right? Is doing it in community, is having your friends over and making a huge, awesome feast and being thankful for the bounty that God has given you. And every society around the world builds culture that way. The problem with gluttony is it doesn't because of its focus on self. That's self-explanatory, huh? Get it? Self. Um, And this is my ultimate point. Gluttony is really about power and control. Um... So we've said this a number of times already. It's not just how much you eat. Could it be how little you eat? Many people who suffer from eating disorders, the psychological root of that is that sometimes people have experienced so much psychological trauma or abuse that their lives are crazy and they're out of control. And the only thing that they can control is how much food they take in or out. Gluttony can also be about how little you eat. Because once again, it's about the control issue of what's going in your mouth of giving yourself pleasure or depriving yourself of pleasure. Um, Yeah, that's kind of, I didn't think about that. Oh, hey, I have this vegan brownie story talking about my time as a barista. So at this restaurant that I was working at, uh, it was a high-scale, high-end vegetarian restaurant. Um... And um, I, as I told you, I worked behind the bar. I made juice and coffee drinks. And we had um, this baker who worked in the restaurant who, who confessed to me that sometimes she laid awake at night dreaming of different ways that you could incorporate more chocolate into desserts. And the restaurant would buy this... Um, They'd buy this imported Belgium chocolate, and it actually came in bar size, but it was like 15-pound chocolate bars. Like, they were that big and they cost about $500 each and it was her job to smash this stuff up and figure out how she could like get it in desserts needless to say the desserts were fabulous Um, and um, working the counter I took all the to-go orders so uh, you know I'm making coffee and things are busy it's coffee break and we were right in downtown Victoria so there's lots of office buildings around so people would come in at coffee break and get coffee to go and get little snacks and whatnot Um, and being a vegetarian restaurant in Victoria let's just say we had some very interesting clientele as well we also sold wheatgrass juice. We sold a lot of wheatgrass juice. I had one guy come in one time and told me that he was going to live forever because he drank 10 shots of wheatgrass a day. Uh, and he said, like, he said it like this, I'm going to live forever. And I'm like, okay, I need to help this person over here. Like, we got all sorts. So, so this woman comes in, obviously in a rush, and she's like, what do you have for vegan desserts? Has anyone tried to make a vegan dessert before? Yeah. Well, we had five to ten. So think about that. You're going to make a dessert with no butter, no eggs, no dairy, nothing that comes from an animal. So all your favorite desserts are immediately out, right? We had about ten, which I thought was impressive. You know, can you think of ten vegan desserts right now off the top of your head? Me neither. I've forgotten them all. So I'm like, well, we have these things. They're called power bars. (coughs) 
and these fruit bars are vegan and this and this and this. And she got mad at me. She's like, that's all. I'm like, and personally, I'm thinking, uh, okay, freaky vegan lady. I thought that was pretty good. She's like, oh, never mind. I'll just take a brownie. Hello, McFly. Like, what's the point? What's the point of being a vegan if you're just going to give up and eat a brownie? You know, like, now, I don't care about people's, you know, if you're vegetarian or vegan. That's totally up to you. Who cares? But I'm wondering why she was inflicting this upon me. Control. That's a control issue. Um, Gluttony is about control. Um, So point number two continued. What is God's alternative to obtaining this good of pleasure? Because focusing only on satisfying our physical and material pleasures of our body will ultimately leave us spiritually hungry, as we know. God's alternative to this is depending upon him. Obviously, once again, power and control. Um, as we said, man cannot live by bread alone. Uh, oh, I said Mark 4.4. 4. Sorry, Luke, there you go. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing at all at that time and became very hungry. And then the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell the stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. My friends, this passage is not really about food. It is about identity and control. See, because Jesus was obviously hungry. He was in the desert. There's not a lot of food in the desert. People die in the desert from starvation frequently, I'm told. Um, But in this passage, Satan says, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread, right? It's all about identity, right? He's challenging Jesus to take control. Who are you? What's your identity? Are you really God? Are you going to obey God? This is, can you trust him, right? And Jesus responds, um, and that, uh, that quote of that man shall not live by bread alone is actually Deuteronomy. He's quoting the Old Testament. Um, of course, where, well, this is a good, let's read this one out too for everyone who's listening online. Remember how the Lord, your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Yes. He humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. And he did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone, but rather we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, because Israel had accepted their false identity as slaves in Egypt, and they were fed. And even though they were, you know, whipped, and they were building pyramids, their lives were kind of under control. You know, everything was regimented. They knew what they were doing. They got fed regularly. Sure, they were slaves, but... And then God called them into freedom. A freedom that was completely dependent upon him and defined by him. What did their freedom look like? Well, you know what? They didn't like their freedom. As um, Numbers 
reminds us here. Soon the people began complaining about their hardship, and the Lord heard everything they said. And then the Lord's anger blazed against them, and he set a fire to rage among them. And he destroyed some of the people in the outskirts of the camp. Then the people screamed to Moses for help, and when he prayed to the Lord, the fire stopped. After that, the area was known as Tabura, which means the place of burning, because fire from the Lord had burned among them there. Then the foreign rabble who were traveling with the Israelites began to crave the good things of Egypt. And the people of Israel also began to complain. Oh, for some meat, they exclaimed. We remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt. And we had all the cucumbers, melons, and leeks, and onions, and garlic we wanted. But now our appetites are gone. All we ever see is this manna. But they were slaves. Okay. So they were complaining and God burnt them. Did I read that right? Yes. That, that's kind of a heavy, huh? And did you see? <laughs> Thank you, Dean. Dean agrees with me. They complained. So the Lord is setting you free. He's calling you out of slavery. Like, The Red Sea parts, you see these crazy things, you go into the wilderness, you eat a bunch of manna, and then you start complaining? Wow, that sounds a lot like me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Also reminds me of this. Here you go, buddy. Breakfast of champions. Close your eyes, it almost feels like you're eating runny eggs. You know, a bowl of snot. Do you know what it really reminds me of? Tasty wheat. Did you ever eat tasty wheat? All right, so here um, Mouse is talking about how the machines have figured out what cereal looks like. Um, Maybe they got it wrong. But this is a more fascinating scene for our purposes today. Do you have today. a deal, Mr. Reagan? You know, I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, the matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? Ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. Are you a slave? Do you give up your freedom for comfort? This is where we're going with this. Now let's really talk about gluttony. The question that I first thought of was, who's in control of your life? But that's such a stupid evangelical question. Those were the kind of questions that I was presented with in church when I was growing up. That's just dumb. Because God controls your life. It's as simple as that, irregardless of your perception. It doesn't matter if you think or not. God controls your life. And your perception of control is a cultural illusion. You don't believe me? You know where that is? High River, Alberta is the correct answer. 
my mother's house is somewhere right there. Um, that, oh, where's my laser pointer here? There it is. That right there, my friends, is the full gospel church. Obviously under a lot of water. So let's pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, please be with the full gospel church and help them as they continue to bring your kingdom to High River and let them be a light of hope at this time. So the reason why I'm bringing this up is because there are moments in our life where, where suddenly we're very aware that we are no longer in control. Okay, so here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God caused this flood, and I'm not saying that God is judging the town of High River for being gluttons at all. I'm not saying that. Don't go there. I am saying that um, my father, my stepfather, is really struggling with his perceptions of identity. Why? Because he's an old farmer. All his life, he's worked very hard. And he's done pretty well for himself. He had a pretty big farm. He had a seed cleaning business. He was making some cash. Um, he married my mother four, four years ago. He just sold his farm, moved to High River into the home that my father, who's now passed away, uh, and my mother bought. Moved all his tools into the garage. He was always the kind of guy who, I'm going to go out, use my hands, work. I get money. I buy food. Boom. That's what happened. A couple of minutes, his entire identity for his entire life was washed away. All his tools, wrecked. His truck, toast. It's gone. And it's not covered by insurance. It's gone. His entire identity was washed away in a couple of minutes. So where I'm going here is... We are not in control of our lives, but our culture tells us that we are. Because you can work hard, because you have a good job, because you're smart, because you have that university degree, through your power of whatever, you make money, you buy food, and you are responsible for your comfort. That's not how it works. And when things like this happen, it's usually a giant wake-up call that that's not how it works. So in talking about the judo principle here, I need to move on. Um, I mentioned this with, with Joanna joking about how I feel about my coffee in the morning. We use this to our advantage by being thankful. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. We use this to be content with what God has provided us with, whether it's a lot or whether it's a little. And ultimately... This is where we talk about fasting. Matthew 6.16 doesn't say, if you fast. It says, when you fast. And I have another confession to make. It took me a really long time to get fasting. Once again, the church that I grew up in, fasting was really not encouraged. And when it happened, it was only like, it seemed like only like the pastor and the board elders and the really spiritual people were like, now we are going to fast. And you had to talk like this because fasting was very serious and solemn. And no, aren't we holy because we're fasting. See, I never liked fasting because I was hungry. <laughs> and when I got hungry, I got really mad. And irritable. And, uh, Wade, 
That's kind of the point. But really, yeah? Has anyone else struggled with this? Oh, I don't want to fast because it makes me miserable. Now, there are some reasons why people can't fast for medical conditions, which is totally cool. My medical condition, why I can't fast, is called gluttony. Because I like eating food and feeling good. But it's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to suck. (laughs) Because, my friends, hunger is good. It reminds us that God is in control. Our culture isn't hungry enough. It's really helpful to be hungry. To go, I'm really dependent upon God. Because our cultural construct of the matrix, you're not dependent upon God whatsoever. You have the tools. You have the fancy truck. You have the job. You're successful. What do you need God for? You need food. You go down to the supermarket and you buy it until it's literally washed away in a flood. We are so hungry for God. And it also reminds us to hunger and to thirst for justice. Which ties nicely into the idea of communion. And just as um, when Jesus offered the bread and wine to his disciples, that physical food obviously nourishes our body, right? Um, and so when, when he made the comparison, when he said, this is my body and this is my blood, He was offering us to satiate our spiritual hunger. And it was an act. I tried to sum this up, but I mean, how how many thousands of years have theologians really tried to write down what the Eucharist really means? Like you start thinking about it a little and you're like, whoa. So I'm going to eat this as a symbol that through the crucifixion of Christ I'm identifying with his suffering and this is the expression of my own redemption that's so simple and so profound it really bakes my head when I start thinking about that really hard. In eating those elements, we are identifying with the suffering of Christ. And we are choosing, we are saying, I am your follower. And I accept the freedom that God is offering me. That he has called the children of Israel out of slavery into the desert. And that by, by partaking of this communion, I'm identifying with the suffering of Christ. So who we are and what we do, the shape that our lives take, is all defined by what we eat and by what we drink at Christ's table. That the simple act of eating this bread... We are relinquishing control. That's the danger with gluttony. Is that it gives us this false perception that we are in control. 
that by whatever cultural construct that we belong to, that we think we can provide for ourselves, that we are strong, by eating this food, we are acknowledging that we are helpless and that we are weak, that we were slaves meeting our own desires. And now we are relinquishing that control to God. And we are saying, I cannot, I cannot live by my own means, but I'm desperate for you. I am so hungry for you. No matter what happens, God, I need you so much. So to wrap up, here are the questions I want you to think about as we move into communion. How do you seek your comfort? And how has our culture's excesses distorted your view of comfort? More specifically, God is in control of your life. It's as simple as that, whether you care to acknowledge it or not. But are you willing to endure discomfort as God works on our character? And then ultimately, how is God shaping your life as he nourishes you with his body and blood as we submit ourselves into the freedom that God has called us to? So let's just uh, pause for a second before we go into communion and take a minute to think about the questions that Wade's put forth. Lord, I ask that you would give each of us the courage to allow your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. Lord, you've also been teaching us as a community that when we are in ministry time, it's not just about us, but it's about the gifts that we have for our brothers and sisters who are here as well. So I pray that you would be speaking words of encouragement and love to us to bless and to give to each other today. And I pray that you would give us a new understanding of what it means to receive communion together today as a community. Lord, speak to us about these, these questions. Give us grace to be willing to be uncomfortable. So often I seek comfort in food instead of in you, Lord. May we be righteously comforted by our communion with each other and with you today, Lord, that we may not hunger and thirst for anything else that is false, that is a counterfeit. Lord, would you give us the real thing today? Would you allow us to taste the real 
bread and body from you, Lord, and the real communion with each other so that we may not be satisfied any longer with the counterfeits. The word of God says that we must prepare ourselves for communion thoughtfully, that we must consider in our hearts if there's anyone that we've offended, that we need to ask forgiveness for, that you would purpose to do so now, that you would commit to God to seek forgiveness from someone that you've wronged or that you need to offer an apology to, that we would eat and drink this communion together in health. Lord, I pray that you would examine our hearts. To you, all hearts are open. To you, no secret is hidden. All of our desires are known. Lord, we are not worthy to receive you, but only say the word, and we shall be healed. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus sat at a meal with his dearest friends. They ate together and they drank together, and the elements of that meal were precious in that culture. Jesus took the bread, and he broke it and gave thanks. And he said to his friends, his best friends, this bread which has represented other things to you before in this precious meal. This bread, it's now my body that's broken for you. When you do this, remember me. So we are now in line with thousands of years of Christianity, and together our brothers and sisters around the world are doing this this morning. This is not about just us. This is about all of us together today, remembering the broken body of Jesus Christ who died for us. I'm going to put that piece that I just broke there. That can be for you. Thanks. Thanks. The body of Christ broken for you, my love. And on the same night, in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup. And again, he gave thanks and praise, and he said to his dearest friends, to his disciples, this is my blood. This is the blood of a new covenant, which is being shed for you and for all people so that our sins would be forgiven. So when we take this today, this is the real meal deal. This is the real thing. So that we can recognize the counterfeits that are standing in, the stuff that we're trying to fill ourselves up with. So we're going to take communion together now as a community. Ashleen is going to come and Rick is going to come. In just a second, I'm going to give this to Wade. So this is the body of Christ which is broken for you, my love. The blood of Christ shed for you, sweetie. I love you. So the way that we usually receive communion at our church is by Oh, sorry, by intinction. And so 
if you take some of the bread from Ashleen, Ashleen and Rick are just going to stand a little bit over here at the end of this aisle. You can break off a piece of bread and dip it into the cup that Rick has. Now, if for some reason you prefer not to dip the juice into the cup, you, there are small glasses here that you can take. Please ask your server. The whole idea is that we serve each other communion, especially today. This sermon underlines how important it is that I think it's significant today that you not come and take communion for yourself. Please ask your server and they will get it for you. We also have rice crackers if you can't have wheat, so we have that too. And also we offer the cups um, for our kids because they sometimes have a problem with the dipping of the juice without the fingers. So. Um, so if you have kids, we would ask that you would go and get them now so that they can receive communion with us. And it also allows our kids' workers to come up and receive communion. And just logistically, we come down this aisle here and come over here. Um, I do want to offer a couple of prayers. I know I just said go get the kids, but I realize we have some special things today. Jin, it's her last day with us today. Jin has been with us from South Korea, and she's been such a special part of our community and especially our lead pastor, Gordy, and his wife, Kathleen. They're away on vacation today. And I think he told multiple different people, make sure that you bless Jen. So I'd just like to ask a few people, maybe even some of the people who were with her on the worship team, to pray with Jen today. Um, and I would also ask that as you're coming to take communion in prayer, we've had prayer requests this week come to the church office for three different people. The first one is the excellent Bob Berta had surgery this week on Friday. Apparently he's doing well. But his sore is recovering, so please remember Bob in your prayers. Monica has asked for prayer for her niece Chrissy, who is on her first missions trip this week and has very severe food allergies, so just for safety and peace. And our own Kaylee Nauman is on her very first missions trip this week. And she turned 15 yesterday, so had her birthday, and she's one of the leaders, and she's in the Yukon. And some of the kids who are at camp are some of the kids that our church also meets and ministers to regularly in lower posts. So some really special things. So as you're considering your own prayer request as you come for communion, would you keep them in prayer? We just ask a few of you who've been in relationship with Jen to maybe come and pray with her as well. So um, Alec, do you want to play during worship? Okay, so Alec will come and receive communion first, and then he'll play some music. And, um, and 